This is KUAF 91.3 FM, your public radio station for more than 37 years. And this is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, May 25th, 2022. I'm Timothy Dennis. And I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Ahead on today's show, Jasper Logan and I sat down with the creators of the Black Legacy Project to talk about the community roundtable they hosted last week. And although the primary election in Arkansas is over, we get a profile from a voter who cast a ballot for only the second time after becoming a U.S. citizen more than three decades ago. That's in less than five minutes on this edition of Ozarks at Large. First, unofficial results are in for yesterday's primary election in Arkansas. According to tallies this morning by the Arkansas Secretary of State's office, less than 26 percent of voters turned out for the election. Former White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders easily won the Republican primary yesterday in her bid for Arkansas governor. She is vying for a position her father, former Governor Mike Huckabee, held. Sanders ran an unprecedented campaign in which she was endorsed by former President Donald Trump and raised a record-breaking $14 million. At her election watch party last night, Sanders highlighted what she hopes to do for Arkansas if elected governor in November. That's why we're running because we love this state, we love the people of this state, and we want to see it be successful. We want to see it thrive. Frankly, I'm tired of watching Arkansas be at the bottom in so many places that I know we deserve to be first. And I look forward to taking us there. In her acceptance speech, Sanders referenced yesterday's school shooting at Texas Elementary School. One goal Sanders said she has for Arkansas is to make sure all lives are protected, especially children. We will make sure that when a kid is in the womb, they're as safe as they are in a classroom, the workplace, a nursing home, because every stage of life has value. No one greater than the other. That's frankly what sets us apart, because we are a culture that values and protects life. And we'll do everything we can to make sure it thrives and grows and lives successfully. Sanders would be the first woman in Arkansas history to be the governor if she wins the election in November. Incumbent Governor Asa Hutchinson is term limited and has said he is considering a run for president in 2024. Chris Jones, a nuclear engineer and an ordained minister, was officially selected to be the Democratic candidate for Arkansas governor in the primary yesterday evening. In an interview with Arkansas PBS, Jones said he would continue to focus on three key goals featured in his campaign, preschool, broadband and jobs. And our message continues to be the importance of spreading PB&J across the state. That's preschool, broadband and jobs. You know, we're going out talking about high quality education, starting with pre-K. Talk about strong infrastructure starting with broadband. And we're talking about economic development in every community across the state, starting with jobs. Jones also told Arkansas PBS that the state needs a balanced budget. So while he is not opposed to a tax cut like his opponent suggests, he said the math has to add up. He will face Sanders and Libertarian Ricky Dale Harrington for governor in the general election in November. Meanwhile, Democrat Natalie James came out ahead in the primary for U.S. Senate with more than 54 percent of the vote. Dan Whitfield came in second with more than 30 percent. James will face incumbent Senator John Bozeman, who received 58 percent of the ballots in the Republican primary, with challenger Jake Beckett receiving just more than 20 percent of the vote. 
Attorney General Leslie Rutledge secured the Republican nomination for lieutenant governor, securing just more than 54 percent of the vote. State Senator Jason Rapert came in second in that race with more than 14 percent of ballots cast. Washington County Judge Joseph Wood, who was also running for the Republican nomination, secured just more than 8 percent of the vote. Republican Secretary of State John Thurston will have a chance to retain his office after securing more than 72 percent of the vote over opponent Eddie Joe Williams. Thurston will be running against Democrat Anna Beth Gorman in the general election. Gorman won the Democratic primary for Secretary of State with more than 58 percent of the vote over opponent Josh Price. Yesterday's election will result in a runoff for some candidates. That runoff election is set for June 21st. In Senate District 28, which covers parts of Madison, Newton, Carroll, Franklin, and Johnson counties, Senator Bob Ballinger will face off against Brian King after neither secured enough votes to win the primary outright. King did come out ahead in the five-candidate Republican primary with more than 31 percent of the vote. There will also be a runoff election for the Senate District 35 seat, covering portions of western Benton and Washington counties. Tyler Dees and Representative Gayla McKenzie will face off in the runoff election. The Senate seat is currently held by Independent Senator Jim Hendren, who is not seeking re-election. In House District 12, Republicans hope Hendren Duke and Jay Oliphant will go to a runoff. And in House District 13, Republican Denise Bugos and Scott Richardson will also face a runoff ballot. This is Ozarks at Large. We recently heard from one Fort Smith voter about her experience participating in this year's primary election. Last week, Sylvia Tran went with her mother, Hui To, to vote for the second time since becoming a U.S. citizen nearly 35 years ago. Tran's parents came to Arkansas from Vietnam in the late 1970s after the fall of Saigon. While many Vietnamese refugees later moved out of state, the city is still home to some 6,000 Vietnamese Americans, according to data from the U.S. Census Bureau. Tran spoke with her mother after they voted and shared some of their conversation and reflections with us. Okay, so why was it important for you to participate? I have been a citizen for the past 35 years but I haven't voted before because I thought that my vote doesn't count much in any election until 2020 election started my to my encouragement of my two adult children. And I think it's a very important election. I start participating and uh, I will start voting in any election from now on. Did you feel prepared about the ballot? Yes, I did. <laughs> why, why did you feel, or why do you say you feel prepared? Or um, you felt prepared? I watched the news and all the um, commercial from the candidates. And then uh, with my daughter helping me research and we discussed more about the candidates. Okay, what are the barriers for the Vietnamese community when it comes to voting? The main barrier is the language and the speaking and writing part. So what would make it easier if 
there was a language barrier. If we have an interpreter or the person that speaks the same language guide us through the whole process, you know, it would be much easier. Hi, I'm Sylvia Tran. I am from Fort Smith, Arkansas. Um, this is actually my first time even voting in the Arkansas primaries. Um, I've been living out of state for a while, and so this is kind of one of the few times in my adult life since being able to vote to vote for a state election. And so in terms of me being politically active, um, we talk about it a lot. I've voted in the main presidential election, but in terms of all the topics and things going on in the world, we talk about that a lot as a family, about what's going on. My mom's uh, sort of a news junkie, so we're always discussing everything that's going on in the world. But my mom wasn't really motivated, or my parents really weren't really motivated to participate um, in voting until the 2020 election. And that was due to a lot of conversations we were having in the house about everything going on at that time and really just felt motivated to finally participate, which is a really, really proud moment for my sister and I. Um, I mean, they've been citizens. They're, they are immigrants from Vietnam and uh, refugees from Vietnam. And it was just a really proud moment for all of us, given that they're refugees. They've been citizens for most of their life, American citizens, and to finally actually participate in that way was really a really proud moment. And so this was then also, too, my parents' first time voting in the Arkansas primaries, um, again, given just everything going on right now in the world and in the state and who are looking at as candidates, just a lot of conversation going on really motivated them to participate again with the local elections. You know, I can't say my family's unique in any way. I'm sure there's other immigrant families with second generation, um, you know, kids also speaking to their parents about things going on in the world. Um, we are very lucky in that all of us kind of align politically as well. So it hasn't really created tension necessarily uh, when it comes to those conversations. But it is it is nice to hear that my sister and I, you know, helped uh, in a lot of the way to to encourage them to actually go participate. And I think they've been wanting to do that for a long time. I think, um, you know, one of the, the largest issues is just the language barrier and just not really understanding the process. You know, just, just the simple act of like, well, where do I even go to like vote? And how does voting even work? Is it on a piece of paper? Is it through a computer, you know, and are they even tech savvy, which my parents are not, you know, and like just needing guidance then if they wanted to participate, how does all that work? And so it's not just about discussing what's going on in the world and getting them motivated in that way. It's then talking about, okay, well, how do we actually get this done? Then how do we actually make sure your voices get heard? And, you know, my sister and I helping to guide them do that then because there isn't anybody else who could do that. I think we're missing on a huge population of immigrant families and minorities in this country who may want to be active, who may not necessarily have an outlet to discuss or learn more about what's going on politically, and then to find out then 
if they wanted to participate, how to even do that due to, again, mainly being a language barrier. Um, So it would be great, like in, you know, much of the larger cities around the country, being able to provide resources to kind of help alleviate some of those barriers and get more immigrant families to the polls. That was Fort Smith voter Sylvia Tran. She shared part of a conversation she had with her mother, Hui To, after they cast their ballots last week. That story was produced by Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth inside the Karen Taha News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering daily activities, various living options, plus wellness facilities, aquatic center, and spa services. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. This is Ozarks at Large, and I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Last week, the Black Legacy Project committed to fostering racial unity and bringing communities in conflict together through music and conversation visited Northwest Arkansas. The National Project hosted a community roundtable about sundown towns on May 15th in Springdale. Between the late 1800s through the 1970s, thousands of towns deemed themselves sundown towns to drive out black populations from living in them, according to the Encyclopedia of Arkansas. KUAF's Jasper Logan and I spoke with creators of the project, Trey Carlisle and Todd Mack, about the project's goals and how the roundtable impacted community members. So the Black Legacy Project is a musical celebration of black history to advance racial solidarity, equity, and belonging. And it's a national project that takes place on the local level. So we travel to different communities across the nation. We select themes and songs that are centered around um, race relations in the United States and that have direct ties to the local communities. And then we bring local community members together across racial divides to discuss these songs, how they relate to the current state of race relations today. And then finally, we have local black and white artists create present day interpretations of those songs and co-write an original song about how we can move forward as a nation. How did this project start? Who who came up with the idea? What was kind of the, the thinking behind that? Uh, well, it started uh, back in the summer of 2020. Music in Common had been going through some transitions at that point as well, in addition to just all of the um, the unrest and the and just the the horrible murders of Breonna Taylor and. I think it started from this idea that I, I kept listening to all these uh, these Bob Dylan songs written in the early 60s uh, during the Civil Rights Movement. And I just kept thinking, like, who is this white guy from rural Minnesota writing these songs for? You know, and I just sort of pitched this idea over to Trey about we should do something with these songs. And then Trey and another uh, Music and Common colleague of his sort of took it from there. And Yeah, what well, was inspiring after... My conversation with Todd, um, what inspired myself and, you know, the other Music in Common fellow was how these songs that were written in the 60s um, are still so relevant today. And these songs that have really been written by black folks and white folks in solidarity um, throughout um, generations, throughout the 400 years of um, black and white race relations in this country, they still speak to the state of race relations today. So we wanted to find 
a way that we can infuse what we do at Music in Common, which is bringing people across divides together and using music as a tool to help folks recognize their shared humanity. We were like, how can we bring that type of work in the context of building bridges across racial divides and helping us recognize ways to move forward um, in the midst of this really global reckoning around race relations um, in the world. So that was the inspiration for us seeking to revisit songs written by black and white folks alike in the past to show how they're still relevant today. And Trey, I'm curious in your research and or through the songs that you have recreated, what song or lyric has is your favorite or has stood out to you and impacted you the most throughout the making of the project? We were able to we launched the project in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts. And in the theme that we selected of Hope in a Hateful World, we chose the song Strange Fruit. Um, we Shall Overcome, Lift Every Voice and Sing, and um, a poem that W.B. Du Bois wrote called My Country Tis of Thee, which is a remix of the American Patriotic Hymn. And on all four of them were so meaningful to interpret. I will say, I think W.B. Du Bois' poem um, is my favorite because he actually was able to practice when he first wrote um, this remix, this poem, kind of what we're doing with the Black Legacy Project now, it's which is back. revisiting these past songs, showing how they're still relevant in today's context um, of race relations and showing how can we move forward. So he was ahead of his time and, you know, not just in thought, but even in creative practice. So it was really fun for us to create an interpretation of that song. I got a quick question. I want to ask about the themes of each cities that you guys are going to and the connections between the songs. Did you choose the themes first or did you choose the songs first? Like how, how, what, how did that process go about? Mm. Um, so it actually started by uh, like geography. Okay. So um, we were awarded a grant, which is what enables us to take it to the six communities. And with the Berkshires, it's actually seven. You know, we were looking for how can we sort of show a snapshot of America, the idea that there is black history in every corner of the country, that black history is American history. And uh, so we wanted big city, small rural predominantly white, predominantly black, very diverse, integrated communities. And I think the, you know, it was landing that, narrowing it down from that list of 50 plus that, that Trey initially came up with to the ones that we landed on. And a lot of that decision making and where to go beyond looking at how can you give this snapshot was, were the themes. And so the thing that I think is so powerful about the project is that they're very local. The theme that we choose for each community has a direct connection to that community, yeah. right? So, for example, here in northwest Arkansas, the theme is after sundown, looking at the history of sundown towns in northwest Arkansas, which, sadly, were fairly prevalent. And so that's kind of the template, kind of the, the formula that we use. Was there, so far, has there any, has there been anything that like has surprised you guys as you began to like explore those themes like in town, you know what I mean? And like being in the spaces, getting to talk with the folks and individuals in the town. Has there been any, anything that's been like, well, that's been surprising or? A hundred percent for me. Yeah. Um, so we start off every project with a roundtable discussion. 
we bring black and white community members together to discuss the theme and discuss the songs we selected in an integrated group setting and in affinity group settings where black um, community members will explore the songs among themselves. White artists will do the same um, as a way to deeper unpack and explore these themes and how it relates to their personal experiences and lived experiences as black and white folks. Then they come together to share what they've learned. What was so powerful for me to witness during the roundtable discussions was how much this history of sundown towns wasn't just a long ago history, but was some of the childhood experiences of our roundtable participants. And to hear the stories that they shared about how it wasn't safe for them to be in certain communities at night, that they would have to leave work or they would have to leave the house early and get back home early because it wasn't safe for them to be traveling. And most heartbreaking to hear the stories of people experiencing racial discrimination, um, um, profiling, racial profiling from law enforcement in their own home communities and how that was very eerily reminiscent of the type of fear, the type of um, emotional trauma um, and terrorism that black folks experienced in the past when sundown towns were very prominent and blatant and how a lot of those roots are still prevalent today. You guys hosted the the community roundtable. Was the response what you expected? Were there things um, in the conversation that like really hit home? Well, certainly to Trey's point, I mean, just hearing people's stories. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I can only speak as a white person, but I would imagine white or black that um, you ha- there's it had been hard not to have been moved by hearing some of those stories. Um, I think the thing for me, the other thing for me that definitely sort of revealed itself that last Sunday as well as in the ones that we've done in the Berkshires is how educational these roundtables are. So on the one hand, you know, there were people in that roundtable that did not actually know what a sundown town was. And so on the one hand, you're like, man, that's horrible that they don't know what a sundown town is. But on the other hand, it's almost reaffirming in this work that we're doing that it's educating people. And I do think that education and, and information informing people is a huge first step in any conflict, in dismantling conflict, right? There's got to be this, this sense of acknowledgement. And you can only have that sense of acknowledgement through these shared personal stories and, and understanding facts, understanding the history, that was so, I mean, I'd known about sundown towns, like, historically through other communities, but it was until this project and learning and researching that I'm like, this is this is steps away from where I've lived most of my life. Right. And, and th- seeing the way it's affected my community members, that sheds light. It's mm-hmm. educational. What has been, has there been a community response outside of the the project? Have people reached out or, or what has that response been like from the community? Honestly, so I think one of the and from 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 the uh, roundtable discussion, I think one of the biggest responses um, that I've gotten was that the space was so necessary. Um, the being able to curate a space where people could feel open and safe enough to share their experiences and to have these discussions um, without judgment and 
Trey led the discussion, and Trey's like the most peaceful person ever. <laughs> he's, I mean, y'all, y'all hear it as you listen to this. He's the one with the super calming voice. <laughs> but he led the discussion, and just his ability to like continue and to like provide that that peace to like everyone as we're talking about like some really hard things, and as people are really sharing like some really like difficult and tough things. I think like the idea like of how can we do this more often? How can we provide a space for this to take place more consistently within our community? Because it's needed, right? Like, I mean, one of the things that, like, I mean, like you, like one of the things that I learned is that there were still Sundown Town signs up in the 80s. In the 80s. And that's like, whoa, like that wasn't that long it's, ago. And those, st- like a lot of people don't know that. And so being able to provide a space where people can like have those discussions, talk about that and just like get those things out. One of the things that I realized at that discussion, like a lot of people that were sharing their experiences, like they just needed to get that out. They just needed to be like, to say it and be affirmed by mm-hmm. somebody that like and be seen and be heard and so like I think like anytime or any way we can like create more spaces where we can do that I think is like what our community is like longing for. For the um, the Black Legacy Project it's been beautiful to see how can we take our model of conflict transformation um, bringing communities together to be able to discuss these themes in a safe and brave space through, you know, agreed norms and agreements that everyone abides by, affinity groups where folks can discuss these topics in depth among people who have a shared lived experience as them and then come back to share it again. It was powerful to be able to do bring that approach in the context of race relations in the United States. So what was meaningful for me and I think what was meaningful for participants was to bring, facilitate roundtables around topics and themes that are so central to the history of race relations in the U.S., but either is rarely talked about, has been so painful and traumatic for folks, they're afraid to talk about it or relive it, or um, a lot of folks don't really know about it at a full extent. So to facilitate roundtables discussions in the Berkshires in Massachusetts around lynching, and posing questions for uh, participants about what is lynching? Do you think lynching is still going on to this day? Um, Or what is a sundown town? What is the impact? To hold space for folks to discuss that through sharing either their personal shared stories, through um, through being able to then go into the latter half of our roundtables where we present some basic background information about what sundown towns are, what lynchings are, it's relevant to the local community. It's um, it's an educational experience through, you know, the, the historical info that we provide, but it's always the most educational experience when participants are he- able to hear personal stories from each other about their lived experiences of dealing with the effects of sundown towns or their lived experiences of living in a community where their grandparents witnessed lynching and always warn them to be safe and be careful. Um, That's the most educational experience for folks. Jasper Logan and I spoke to Trey Carlisle, co-director of the Black Legacy Project, and Todd Mack, executive director of Music in Common, last Thursday in the Furman Garner Performance Studio. A listener in Fort Smith told us, NPR provides quality, up-to-date, and accurate news coverage. Whether it's local, national, or international news, I rely on NPR to keep me informed. I enjoy Ozarks at Large and other local coverage with in-depth stories and news that other radio stations do not provide. 
During the month of June, KUAF will be raising the funds that are necessary to keep this coverage available in the year to come. Help KUAF continue to provide the news and information you can't find anywhere else. Give online at supportkuaf.com. This is Ozarks at Large. On the previous episode of Undisciplined, a podcast production of KUAF, we heard about Nelson Hackett, the enslaved man who escaped from Fayetteville and headed to Chatham, Canada, just across the border from Detroit. University of Arkansas professor of history Michael Pierce picks up the story from there. Alfred Wallace, the, the, the man who um, had the legal title to Nelson Hackett, once he found out that Nelson Hackett had crossed the Mississippi at Marion City, he just goes straight to Canada. And he goes straight to Canada, and he goes straight to Chatham. And so he knows. That he there's a knows, connection. He knows there's a connection. Mm. And he knows which town to look in. And, and, and so, and so, so did you trace Wallace's background, Mike? Yes. Well, well we, know, we know a lot about the Wallaces. Where did he come from? Georgia. Okay. So he's in Canada. So, and Wallace so, knows that. No, Wallace knows where to go. Where's where to go to track him down? And so they find him. Wallace grabs two justices of the peace, and goes and barges where in on where Nelson Hackett is staying, and they beat the crap out of him. Um, they beat him with a uh, a whip handle. They give him a concussion, and they throw him in jail, and they say. We want to extradite him back to Arkansas to face charges of theft. And Alfred Wallace knew that Canada... Theft of himself as a person, Ella Frederick Douglass, stealing his limbs and his head and body? Theft of the coat, the hat, the gold watch, the chain, the horse, and the saddle. Mm. So the other things. The other things. Mm. Also, Alfred Wallace claimed that Nelson Hackett took about $500 worth of gold and silver when he left. And this is like the the rape story. When push came to shove, it was never really pushed, that, that $500. But here's the strange thing. Alfred Wallace was one of the officers... In the Arkansas State Bank, a state chartered bank with an office here in Fayetteville, and it was corrupt as the day is long, Mm. and money disappeared from the bank left and right. But I'm thinking also, Mike, that what if this was winnings from the horse and the fighting? I don't know. This is stolen money that he had taken from the Arkansas bank. He could be stolen money he took from the Arkansas bank. And trusted it with Nelson to take home, and Nelson was like, you know what? You could kick rocks, Alfred. I, I think money disappeared from the Arkansas State Bank. Many people thought Alfred Wallace <laughs> might be involved with that. <laughs> We're looking at you, Alfred. <laughs> and, 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 and so maybe, maybe he took the money. Who knows? Nelson Hackett was extradited on charges of stealing the house, the horse, horse. the saddle, the coat, the hat, because he knew 
that Canada, where slavery had been abolished. And fugitives it, were free and safe. Yeah. They wouldn't extradite, would extradite them a just fugitive. for being an enslaved person or a fugitive. Mm-hmm. And so they, they needed... They needed another charge. So Nelson Hackett was... This was in early September of 1841. Mm-hmm. And so he was taken to the jail in a place called Sandwich, which is right across the river from Detroit. The jail, in fact, it was on the river, and you could probably see Detroit from it. And he sat there for months and months while Canada said, what do we do? Do we send him back? But he is already stateside. No, no. Oh, he's, he's in Sandwich. He's in Sandwich. So looking across at Detroit. He's looking across okay. at he's, he's like right at the border. Yes. He's just right at the border. And, and the Canadians are, are debating this. There's a group of free black people in Detroit. Um, and they organize the Colored Vigilant Committee. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they send people to check on Nelson Hackett. Well, they were convinced, they were convinced, they're, they're like, ah, Canada's never going to send him back. Mm-hmm. That Canada, you know, the, the abolitionist community in Canada is strong. Uh, the, the British Empire's commitment to abolitionism is strong. And the Canadian governor is never going to send him back. Well, new Canadian governor arrives straight off the boat from England. And he gets there and he says, I'm sending Nelson Hackett back. And he said, because this, he says, look, this man's a thief. He's a criminal. And we don't want criminals settling amongst us. And so Nelson Hackett becomes the first, and as we'll see, the only fugitive from slavery that Canada sends back into bondage in the United States. And in February of 1842, Nelson Hackett is blindfolded. He's bound. He's put on a boat and crosses the Detroit River at midnight. I I just, the thought of being in a cold boat bound up, crossing back into slavery just sends shivers down my spine. And then he sits in a Detroit jail for two more months. And at that time, the, the Colored Vigilance Committee holds a couple meetings. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And the Colored Vigilance Committee says, look, we have to alert this broader transnational abolitionist community. Mm-hmm. And they, they publish and they, they, they write resolutions. We cannot allow this to stand. If Nelson Hackett can be extradited on charges of theft, every slaveholder in the United States is going to be at our borders with some pretext that that fugitive uh, stole something from me. And, And no black person will ever be safe in Canada again. And they said this has to stop. This has to absolutely stop. We cannot allow this to happen and sends out notices and resolutions to William Lloyd Garrison's paper, to the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society, abolitionists in the United Kingdom, along the East Coast, throughout Canada. And, And what they do is they sound the alarm. This is when the broader abolitionist community gets involved and they start protesting. You know, look, don't send him back. But really, once Nelson Hackett's back in 
to the United States. The deal is over. He is coming. He's, he's heading back to Arkansas. Once Nelson Hackett is moved across the Detroit River and is in the Detroit jail, his fate is, is pretty well determined. And, but they have to wait until April to bring him back to, to Arkansas. And, and, and so this local guy, and, and then a guy comes all the way from Fayetteville to escort Nelson Hackett back to Fayetteville. And so they want to go the safest way possible. And, and so, so they don't leave Detroit until early April of 1842. And they wait because they have to let the ice clear on Lake Huron and, and Lake Michigan. And so, so they, they, they fit them up in a hobble. And a hobble is an iron contraption with arms going out both sides. It's fitted around the neck. It's to make escape really hard. And Nelson Hackett and his two captors get on a boat, a steamer, and they go up Lake Huron and down Lake Michigan. They get to Chicago and they get on a stage in Chicago. And for a three-day trip to Peoria, where they will get on a steamship on the Illinois River to the, the Mississippi, on that stagecoach ride from Chicago to Peoria, Nelson Hackett escapes again. He escapes in a town called Princeton, Illinois, and he slips out of an inn at night, gets off his hobble, and is trying desperately again to get freedom. Captors offer a $200 reward for his return. After several nights, he goes up to a farm, and the farmer he asks the farmer for food, and the farmer says, I got you, and turns him in for a reward. There's a reason I'm saying this, because Alfred Wallace paid thousands and thousands of dollars to secure the return of Nelson Hackett to Fayetteville. He had to pay the expenses of the posse that originally tracked him. He had to pay the expenses of going all the way to Chatham to capture Nelson Hackett. He had to pay the expenses of housing Nelson Hackett for months in the jail sandwich. He had to pay lawyers. He had to pay expenses of transporting him to Detroit and housing him in the Detroit jail. He had to pay the expenses of the dude who came from Fayetteville, went from Fayetteville to Detroit to bring Nelson Hackett back. He had to pay the guy in Detroit to transport Nelson Hackett. He had to pay the $200 reward. He had to pay for the food of all of these people. He was paying thousands and thousands yeah, and thousands of dollars to secure the return of an enslaved man that he had paid $1,000 for. You can hear the remainder of Nelson Hackett's story and his impact on future slavery extradition laws across North America on the latest episode of Undisciplined, a production of KUAF and Ozarks at Large. The show is produced by Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore. The Artisphere Festival Orchestra concludes its 2022 residency at Walton Arts Center May 27th with a finale performance of works by Strauss and Stravinsky, featuring more than 90 premier musicians from around the world under the baton of maestro Corrado Rivera's. Tickets available at artisphereFestival.org. This is Ozarks at Large. The Equality Crew is conducting an LGBTQ plus youth needs assessment survey in partnership with the UAMS College of Public Health. 
This survey, the first of its kind in Arkansas, seeks youths aged 12 to 18 residing in Benton and Washington counties to participate. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, nearly 300 youths have responded so far. Danielle May is CEO and spokeswoman for the Equality Crew, established last year to create safe spaces for LGBTQ plus youth to gather and have fun. There's not a lot of data out there about LGBTQ plus youth in Arkansas um, and you know, around their needs, their quality of life, any existing gaps. And so we wanted to be able to really have that data so that that can drive our program development and then we can share it um, publicly for awareness as well as in grants to let funders know that these kiddos are here and this is what their needs are. The digital LGBTQ plus youth survey is designed to collect demographic data assess life experiences and participants' feelings of safety in different places, and examine effective support systems, including medical care delivery, all to improve their quality of life. The Equality Crew has partnered with UAMS, Faye W. Bozeman College of Public Health in Little Rock to specifically assess the needs of LGBTQ plus youth ages 12 and up living in Benton and Washington counties. Yep, so we're partnering with UAMS College of Public Health. We're working with Dr. Alex Marshall and then one of her um, doctoral students on developing the survey as well as the um, stakeholder interviews that we'll be doing. Dr. Alex Marshall is Associate Professor and Co-Director of the PhD Program in Health Promotion and Prevention Research at UAMS public health doctoral student who's taken the lead on the design and deployment of the Equality Crew grant-funded needs assessment survey is Camille Richou. It's a short online survey that was developed using um, a couple of different sources, including the San Francisco LGBTQ needs assessment survey and some other kind of indicators for social wellness uh, for youth. Um, and it was also based on what the equality crew was really looking for for their purposes. So we could have gone really broad with it, asked all kinds of you know comprehensive needs assessment questions, but they were kind of focused on a certain like area within that, which is sort of community involvement, social support, school, family, get input about what kind of services support um, things that they were getting, they weren't getting and needed. Um, and what kind of things that the organization, like how they can fit into um, the needs of queer and trans youth and families in the area. Back in 2014, the Human Rights Campaign conducted a needs assessment survey of 1,000 LGBT adults in Arkansas. This was a year before the U.S. Supreme Court struck down state bans on same-sex marriage. That assessment found that one quarter of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Arkansans experienced employment discrimination. Nearly 40% experienced harassment at work, as well as by members of their own family. And over 40% experienced harassment in public establishments, including high school and college. 
Arkansas has long ranked near the bottom of U.S. states on basic equality for LGBTQ plus people, made worse after the Arkansas legislature enacted laws targeting transgender children and young adults, denying them affirming medical care, access to school sport, and safe restroom facilities, all in an attempt to disregard, to erase their identities. The Equality Crew Youth formed in part to countervail that extremist political bias against LGBTQ plus youth in Arkansas. And this survey will help to illuminate their needs at this critical time, May says. This um, pilot of the online survey, um, it's 6th through 12th grade or the homeschool equivalent, um, identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, or any sexual minority identity. Um, identify as any gender identity, including transgender, and then reside in either Benton or Washington counties. Um, And then we're just, the series of questions um, aims to kind of see what the current quality of life for young LGBTQ plus Arkansans is, what they need in order to achieve an improved quality of life, and then what are the barriers or gaps to achieving that. The Equality Crew has deployed a promotional campaign to locate willing participants, including at upcoming Summer Pride events. And then we're also partnering with um, the Arkansas Academy of Pediatrics. Referring to the state chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. They are also doing um, a project where they are... um, providing education for their clinics to better um, serve LGBTQ plus youth. And so we've kind of attached onto that outreach so that they can share with all of their clinics. So um, any clinic that is a member of that group in Northwest Arkansas has been outreached to. And then um, we're also outreaching to any like other nonprofit that is involved with kids at all. Um, lots of summer camps and then um, just community leaders. The Equality Crew's online youth survey, which requires no parental consent, is confidential. The assessment also includes interviews with key stakeholders who serve LGBTQ plus youth in the region. The findings will be compiled in a report for public release by 2023. Initial response to this survey was significant, May says. In the first three days, we had over 200 responses. The Equality Crew LGBTQ plus youth needs assessment survey is foundation supported. So we were awarded a $25,000 grant from the Arkansas LGBTQ plus advancement fund that is administered by the Arkansas Community Foundation. It's funded by Alice L. Walton Foundation, Olivia and Tom Walton through the Walton Family Foundation, and then Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation. The digital survey will be live through August and can be accessed online at equalitycrew.org. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. 
The latest edition of Points of Departure, a podcast production of KUAF and Arkansas Global Changemakers, focuses on the work being done to create international connections by the University of Arkansas. This episode focuses on the programming at the U of A's Rome Center. Co-host Lawrence Hare, a professor of history at the University of Arkansas, speaks with Francesco Budeski, the director of the U of A's Rome Center, about its history and how the endeavor's focus has shifted in more recent years. The Rome Center is so well attended. Italy is the number one study abroad destination for for University of Arkansas students. Tell me, in your opinion, why Rome is such an attractive destination? Well, Rome is such an attractive destination because uh, of uh, the tradition linked to the Grand Tour uh, and the presence of some important uh, um, international academic institutions. The first of all is the American Academy, which, as you know, offered the Rome Prize, now the Prix de Rome, but not only. Just to give you an idea and to help uh, our people who is listening to us to understand uh, the size of this of this uh, presence, um, in Italy there are 150 American universities that have their program accredited with the Italian authorities. Of this 150, 60% of the programs are in Rome. The other 50% are in Florence. So you have these two poles, mm-hmm. okay, Florence and Rome, that really represents the, the destinations. Florence obviously related also to some, uh, you know, the legacy of the arts and being uh, such an important Renaissance city. Rome, uh, Rome is caput mundi. I mean, it's uh, the city that in a certain way, you know, polarized uh, the international experience from the Anglo-Saxon world in a certain way. So, and we have academies from Germany, from England. So, so Rome is definitely an important destination. Rome is also a node of, of, of a global network of large metropolitan areas. Yeah, Being we, the capital of Italy, you have, uh, you know, presence of uh, all sorts of institutions, from government to uh, international, like the UN has uh, three facilities in Rome, international research centers uh, from all fields, from medical to science to political all the embassies. So you understand that the opportunities are huge. Well, you, you and I have talked about this for years as we've been building curricula and increasing programming at the Rome Center. And that, that notion of Rome as a hub in Europe and, and a global hub has been an important part of that. Can you, can you say just a word about the way that your planning for the Rome Center has tried to capitalize on that status? I mean, obviously, the pandemic has shown an embedded fragility in a, a certain type of model of study abroad. The model that was developed in the 70s, in the 80s, in which, you know, university would just send the students to admire the Pantheon or the ruins or just to enjoy the beauty of the antiquity. Unfortunately, no, it's changing. We live in a globalized world. So, you know, the idea of um, being connected to the reality of the world, of the international world, it's key. So we, as a program, are trying to grow and to create more and more opportunities for our students and our faculty as well, our colleagues from the United States, to intercept different types of opportunities, which can then develop in other types of experiences, starting with internships, and, you know, obviously Camilla can speak about that, joint research opportunities, 
um, funded projects. Uh, um, so educating our students is still our core mission, but there's more that we can do. Having a unit, because the Rome Center is, is a unit of our university in, in Rome, which means in Europe. Again, the office of the European um, community is literally 500 meters from our building in, in Palazzo Taverna. Um, so it's very easy to intersect opportunity. We, as an institution, are working hard to create connections. And I can name a few of them. I mean, we have established a strong connection with the Green Building Council of Italy, for example. Uh, which is uh, an important association that promotes sustainability in the built environment. And it's made of uh, 600 leading companies in the country that are all working towards that goal. Uh, we have made an agreement with the, the Instituto Superiore di Sanità, the National Institute of Health. Um, thanks to this agreement, we're now able to intersect opportunities for students in the field of medicine, biomedical uh, engineering, wow. pharmacy. We just have a group of pharmacy coming in. We have connection with FAO, we have connection with uh, uh, other universities. So this network can amplify the opportunities of what we can do. But the center still remains the hub. So students can come and be in an environment which is in a certain way a friendly environment. You know, they find people who know what, where they're coming from, which are the expectations, who can support in the moment in which they get out in the, let's say, in the city and they get out from their comfort zone, but if there's a problem, we are here to support them, right? So, and I can quote just an example and uh, the experience we developed with the School of Nursing, we made an agreement with the Gemelli Hospital, which is one of the best hospitals in Europe, is the hospital of the Pope, just to give you an idea. Um, so our students would go there once a week to do their clinical experience with local students, with local physicians, uh, and they learned how different is the public health system in Italy, right, from the one in the United States. But then they would come back every other day to, the, to, their, to their facility in Palazzo Taverna, you know, which is going back to the, the home campus in a certain way. And we're now looking at this model also with other, other departments. The School of Engineering, for example, is, is looking at the same opportunity. That was Francesco Badeschi, director of the U of A's Rome Center, speaking with Lawrence Hare, a professor of history at the U of A and a co-host of the Points of Departure podcast. You can hear the full episode, which is a production of KUAF and Arkansas Global Changemakers, wherever you get your podcasts. The show is produced by KUAF's Lee Wood. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Clifty. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF, and I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. And I'm Timothy Dennis. Contributors to today's show included Jacqueline Froelich and Daniel Carruth. The Undisciplined Podcast is hosted by Dr. Kareeb Banton and produced by Matthew Moore. Additional content today came from KUAR, Public Radio for Little Rock and Central Arkansas. We will be back tomorrow at noon and 7 with another brand new edition of Ozarks at Large. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great rest of your Wednesday.